This is a Commitment 2020 special. The WLWT debates. Here now, Ashley Kirkland. Good evening. Tonight we are covering the race for the Ohio State House with the candidates for District 28, which covers northeastern Hamilton County, including areas like Blue Ash, Sharonville, and Springdale. Joining us is incumbent Democrat Jessica Miranda. Representative Miranda has lived in Southwest Ohio her entire life. She is a graduate of Talawanda High School. She's the past president of the Winton Woods School Board. Miss Miranda lives in Forest Park and is a small business owner. Her opponent is Republican Chris Monzel. He grew up in Loveland, is a graduate of Moeller, Purdue University, and has a master's from UC. Mr. Monzel has worked in a number of public service roles, including Cincinnati City Council. He lives in Glendale. Welcome to both of you and thanks for joining us. And we don't have a lot of time tonight, so we want to move quickly to our opening statements from both of you. Now, Chris Monzel, by virtue of a coin toss, you have the first opening statement and you have one minute. Well, thank you very much, Ashley and WLWT for hosting this debate tonight. Uh, this election is so important. And for me, being able to connect with the voters out there and explain just how critical and important this November 3rd election is. I grew up in District 28. It's where I went to school. It's where I've worked. It's where I've raised my family. It's my home. And these times are so important as you see what state government has been involved in our daily lives, from our jobs to our health care, to our children's education, schools, sports, to our senior citizens, to our families and businesses. And this election is critical to the future, not only to District 28, but to the state of Ohio. And what we need to do is to make sure that we understand the differences between the two candidates. And you'll see that tonight. My candidate has been supportive of groups that have done violent rioting, that don't support funding the police, as well as put on our social media page that blue lives don't exist. A disparaging, disrespectful co comment to the men and women who every day put their lives on the line to protect our community. And I know her stepdad was a former sheriff's deputy in Butler County, but to me that was unacceptable and irresponsible. And that's why I'm running, to be responsible to the District 28 voters. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Monzel. Now to the opening statement from Jessica Miranda. You also have one minute. Thank you, Ashley, and thank you, WLWT, for having me here. I am Jessica Miranda, your state representative for Ohio's 28th House District, and I would not be here today if it weren't for my mom and her resilience. She was widowed when I was only five years old and worked multiple jobs to put food on our table. Low wages and a lack of support meant that more often than not, my sisters and I had to go without. I played softball in high school and remember earning a spot as the starting left fielder. But when we went to our first game, I was unable to play in our first game because my mother wasn't able to pay our school fees. That feeling has stuck with me to this day. That feeling of exclusion is what made me run, join my kids' PTA and eventually serve as president of the Wentonwood City School Board. There I eliminated school fees and ran for the state house because I saw our lawmakers were failing us in Columbus. Despite our unconstitutional funding system here in Ohio, lawmakers couldn't or wouldn't solve the problems that we needed solved. I am a fighter for you and want to continue to fight for you in the state house. All right, thank, thank you. you. 
Miss Miranda. I work for you. All right, thank you, Miss Miranda. Now we want to get to our question and answer portion of the debate. Each of you will have one minute to answer each question. If I need to ask a follow-up, you will each have 30 seconds. And we want to start with you, Mr. Monzel. Ohio's economy, especially here in Southwest Ohio, has been devastated by the coronavirus. A large part of that is from Governor DeWine's ordered closure of most businesses in order to flatten the curve. We are now more than seven months past those initial closings and hitting new peaks of cases and hospitalizations despite our efforts. Do you agree with the governor and how he has handled this crisis? So I think Governor DeWine cares deeply for the public safety of every citizen in Ohio. And I think he's done a tremendous job in getting us through the beginnings of this pandemic and trying to lead us forward. I do believe that we should keep Ohio's economy open. I do believe that when we say flatten the curve, that if you look at the curve, that by flattening it doesn't mean it goes away and goes to zero. It actually has to extend out over time. So as those number of cases were decreased at the beginning of this, they still are occurring and that's what we're seeing right now and will occur over time until we get through it all. And to me, I think it's important that we focus on those layers of safety of making sure that our uh, businesses and our families and our schools have all the protective equipment, the necessary processes in place that they can stay open and stay viable because it's the unintended consequences of these businesses closing. We just saw the article in the inquiry the other day about the number of women that were not able to get their mammograms and the potential increase of breast cancer, not to mention the increase that we've seen in suicides as well as other health issues that because of the shutdown, people were not able to get to the doctor. All right, thank you. Your time is up. Miranda, you have one minute to answer the question. Thank you. And to me, as a mom, nothing is more important than the safety and the health of our families and all Ohioans. So I, of course, agree with the steps that Governor DeWine and Dr. Amy Acton took in the beginning of this pandemic. Unfortunately, because of our federal government's response to this crisis, we got started behind the ball. I am proud of the things that we have done in the State House. I have been able to secure millions of dollars to District 28 in CARES Act funding. We have also been working working hand in hand with our amazing state departments and, and um, uh, organizations like Jobs Ohio to provide PPE to business owners so that they can stay open, to provide PPE to healthcare or healthcare heroes who have been putting their lives on the line since the beginning of this. We've been able to do a good job here in Ohio in the beginning, but like you've heard, our, our numbers are starting to spike again, and that is why it is so important. I wear my mask everywhere I go, and I encourage everyone to do that as well because that is the only way we're going to stop the spread of this virus and save senseless lives lost. All right, thank you, Ms. Miranda. We will stay with you for question two, and both of you touched on small businesses. Small businesses are suffering, many of them closing down for good. What should the General Assembly do to help them survive this pandemic? Absolutely, thank you for that question. There is so much we can do in the form of legislation to make sure that our businesses' doors stay open. Um, we could have acted in, in particular haste in the beginning to make sure that everyone had PPE. Um, the flow of that wasn't as fast as we'd like to see it. And we have a number of bills, myself and my Democratic colleagues have a number of bills um, from business insurance expansion to unemployment expansion and everything in between. I actually have a bill 
um, that would extend permits for alcohol permits and because we know our bars and our small restaurants are the ones that have been hit the most during this pandemic um, and especially now that they have the time um, you know the 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 10 o'clock p.m. where they have to stop serving alcohol uh, we know is hard for them so I wanted to make sure we can extend that so they can save their hard-earned money um, and extend that period to apply for their alcohol permit we have a lot of bills in the state house that we simply cannot move because the super majority of Republicans in this state will not move them. Ms. Miranda, that is your time. Mr. Monzel, you have the same question. Yeah, from a standpoint, I think uh, the state legislature did act on making sure that businesses were protected, that if someone came there and, and you know, re became positive from COVID, that they wouldn't be sued for that because you couldn't really establish whether they got COVID there or not. I think protecting businesses and making sure that they have the equipment and, you know, make sure they have the sanitizing type equipment available to them so that they could stay open and be able to protect not only their staff and the people working there, but also any customers that are coming in there is crucial. And then we have to look at providing, you know, short-term temporary loans uh, that we can provide for these small businesses to make sure that they're able to, to get through this. And I think the key is though, is making sure that they stay open, that we can't go into another lockdown that we saw from the month of March through May, that we have to make sure that businesses are staying open and being able, and then one of the bills right Right now in front of the house is to establish the, the liquor's uh, permit for buying uh, liquor past 10 o'clock. Uh, I believe that should be passed and that, that should be put in place to make sure that restaurants and bars have the ability to stay open. All right, we're going to stick with coronavirus. And Mr. Monzel, you have the next question. The Republicans in the General Assembly have led the charge to limit the authority of the state health department to mandate closures and quarantines during a health crisis. Do you support that position? And please explain why or why not. So if you look at the actual legislation that was passed that gave that authority to the health director that was passed back in the early 1900s when it took over four hours to get to Columbus to the state house in order to to do any type of legislation now and with with technology with zoom meetings with everything that we have today I think that you don't need to have that type of authority anymore uh, because you can meet quicker and you can be able to make decisions much faster than waiting almost a month to assemble everybody up in Columbus I, I think you need to have checks and balances between our three branches of government and that's what we put in place. That's what we have, you know, our separation of powers. And, and I think from a standpoint, the legislature has a right to go in there and look at what type of balance of checks and balances need to be put in place for the health director. And I would support looking at that and trying to make sure that it makes sense for today and what we have available for us in order to move quicker instead of just giving someone a blank check to put whatever type of restrictions they want in place. I think you have to have that checks and balances. Ms. Miranda, you have one minute for the same question. Thank you. I appreciate the question. And I am so very glad that my opponent brings up the term checks and balances because that is the problem we have in the state house in 2020. We are dealing with what is called a supermajority, where the Republican Party not only controls all three branches of government, but controls everything that we do in the state house, which means bills like mine, common sense solutions for bar owners and restaurant owners can't go anywhere um, because the the supermajority won't move it. And I absolutely agree with. Um, um, giving, get, not stripping the power, I think that is absurd. We don't need to be wasting time stripping power from um, the governor and our health director on what to do with a global pandemic such as the coronavirus. I think that's a waste of time. Um, it is not an efficient use of our time as your elected officials. And we could be working on things that matter most to our families, to students, to schools, to affordable health care, and making sure everyone has the access um, to the lives we deserve here in the great 28. 
Thank you, Ms. Miranda. That leads us into our next topic on ethics. Ethics for state lawmakers has taken an unexpectedly large role after the arrest of Speaker Householder on federal charges. To be clear, neither of you is implicated in that scandal. But please talk a little bit about the access that you give or would give to lobbyists versus those people in the district who are looking for you to be their voice. Ms. Miranda, you have one minute. Absolutely, and thank you for allowing me to clarify how corrupt House Bill 6 was. Um, this is something that we've dealt with since I took office in 2019. It was clear to me as a freshman lawmaker that this corrupt bill um, was surrounded with bribery and corruption and was clearly a priority of the now indicted former House Speaker. I did not vote for House Bill 6. I do not believe in raising the prices of our utility bills for our homeowners and families here in the Great 28. And I am the only Democrat that has a bipartisan bill to combat campaign finance reform here in Ohio, meaning getting dark money out of politics so that these things cannot happen again. I promise to the people of the Great 28 that I will continue to fight for sensible solutions to get us out of this pandemic stronger than before. And I am proud to say that every decision I make in the State House is a decision my daughters can be proud of. All right, Ms. Miranda, thank you. Mr. Brunzel, you have one minute for the question on ethics. So corruption, public corruption is wrong no matter what at any level of government, federal, state, local. We've seen it here often um, too much in the state of Ohio. And, and from a standpoint, that's not what the voters expect. Citizens expect government to go to work and get things done. And that's not happening. And it is an issue that we need to address. And I think when talking about House Bill 6, you know, to me, it's, it was a, a bill that was very tainted and needs to be redone. I think there's things in it that was positive, but at the same time, with the, the scandal that was a trope, you know, appropriate with it, it's not what should be passed and we should be re re looking at it again. Uh, but the, in the interesting thing is that my opponent actually was a no-show for the final vote on that. And for a bill that was so scandalous and so corrupt, uh, to not show up for that vote, it gave no voice to the residents of District 28 for such an important uh, piece of legislation. And, and to me, I think that's what's important. You, you need to show up, you need to do your job. Uh, it's a dereliction of duty of not to show up and not to be voting on such a big piece of legislation. And to me, that was disappointing. And, and citizens of District 28 feel the same way. Ms. Miranda, we would like to give you 30 seconds to respond if you would like. Absolutely, thank you. And I will just clarify again how corrupt this process on House Bill 6 was. The fact that I missed the vote is just a, a perfect example of how quickly this bill moved through the legislative process. That is not how our government is supposed to work. Moving up bills so that you can make sure you pass something when you have all of your yes votes in the room is not how we adequately serve Ohioans and the people of the great 28. I voted no on House Bill 6 the first time. If I were able to be there, I would have voted That's no on it again. Thank you. Mr. Munzel, we'd like to give you 30 uh, seconds. You know, I appreciate that. I, I think the issue is if it's such an important issue and it's so vital, you would make every effort to show up and represent your citizens in that vote. I've done that before in, in my roles at the county commission and city council, that if I was against something, I fought it all the way to the end. And not being able to be there, and no matter what process is, I've been in a super minority as well, you have to show up, you have to do your 
your job and represent the citizens that elected you. And not doing that to me is a disservice to the voters in District All right, that is your time, Mr. Mundell. And we will start with you for the next question on education. Ohio's education funding system has been unconstitutional since 1997. Every fix that's been proposed has been shot down, and many school budgets have been made even worse by the coronavirus. And what is your plan to fund Ohio schools, and how will it benefit the children who live in our area? So to me, I, I think we have to get out a, a clean sheet of paper and really look at how we are doing school funding. It's a mess. And, and when you look at the disparity that you see just within District 28 from the various school systems, you know that there's a problem. You know, why are some of our school districts doing so well and others aren't? And, and to me, I think we have to look at that funding model and really come up to something that's really equitable and fair. And that also balances out the needs of rural districts versus urban districts. Uh, if you look at the last two years, you know, not one dime, not one nickel has come back to our school districts of an increase uh, for the last uh, session. And to me, that is wrong, especially now when you're seeing so much uh, hurt from this coronavirus pandemic and being able to get uh, schools, you know, online, having the resources available for their students so they can do a remote learning or a hybrid approach uh, to have the PPE that they need to make sure they're protecting their students and their staff. I mean, all those things need to be in place and funding takes to do that. And we've seen nothing move on that over the last two years. And, and to me, that's a disservice to the students and the families. All right, that district. is your time, Mr. Mondale. Ms. Miranda, you have one minute for the question. Thank you for this question. And as a former school board president, um, this is something that I fight for every single day in the state house. I am proud to say that my record reflects that I am a fighter and an advocate for the funding that I know our students and schools deserve. We need to bring our tax dollars back home and have them work for us in our schools for once, instead of placing that burden on the shoulders of property owners. This is nothing but tax shifting, and this is what the majority party has done in the state house for two and a half decades. I have a bill to fix school funding here in Ohio, which is House Bill 305, the Fair School Funding Plan, the biggest bipartisan effort the state has ever seen to fix school funding. And we are so very close to passing that. And if you elect me to serve you again, I will make sure that this gets passed next term. We need to put a funding formula in place. We need to make sure our tax dollars come back home. Our students and our schools deserve it. All right, thank you, Ms. Miranda. And we want to shift to our next topic. You will have one minute for this question on policing. Policing our streets has been a focal point since summer for many people. And we want to touch first on training. Any state mandated training for officers must be paid for by the state. Are you prepared to allocate more money for police training? And if so, what kind of additional training would you require? Absolutely. I would allocate that funding in a heartbeat. And again, the fact of the matter is, is that the Democratic caucus in the State House has 14 different bills to address police funding, police training, police education, PTSD coverage for our men and women in uniform who fight every day and put their lives on the line. And those bills have gone absolutely nowhere because of the supermajority's control and stranglehold on our State House. Um, I fully support 
Corps investing in officer training, and I am proud to have worked with all of the great 28's police departments to put things in place to make sure that our communities are taken care of, no matter what zip code you live in, and no matter the color of your skin. Policing is so very important that we make sure that we allocate the necessary funds, and the fact of the matter is, is that the Republican supermajority in the State House has defunded the local government fund by 50% over the last decade. Those funds go directly to police, fire, and first responders. All right, thank you for your answer. Mr. Munzel, you have one minute for the question. I, I just want to correct a statement my opponent just said. The local government fund doesn't just go to police and fire. It goes to other resources as well. As a county commissioner and former city council member, it goes to other parts of local government, not just to that. And, and if you look at some of the bills that uh, my opponent has been put forward with the Democrat caucus, one of which is House Bill 707, actually takes away the use of potentially using tear gas by police officers in our community. You know, that's a way to de-escalate. And I think we do need to fund the police more. When I was on Cincinnati City Council, I support adding more police officers to our street. That's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we have the resources in place because every community deserves to be safe. Every community deserves to have the resources there in order to make sure that their public safety officers are available and trained correctly. And we did that when, on Cincinnati City Council with our Cincinnati Police Department. It's one of the best police departments in the nation. It's been used as an example of how to get along with community police relations. That's what we need to be doing across the state of Ohio. Mr. Monzel, you have the next question. We will stick with the subject mm -hmm. of policing, this time defund police. In addition to more training, many activists have called for defunding the police, which has commonly come to mean moving some money from police budgets to pay for social service programs to help marginalized people avoid potentially violent interactions with police in the first place. Under this definition, do you support defunding the police? And if so, what do you think that money should be used for? No, absolutely not. I think we should be increasing the funding to the police, making sure that you do have the resources and training uh, opportunities so that they can go in and de-escalate. I mean, I've had done ride-alongs uh, throughout, you know, Cincinnati City Police Department and being able to be there and actually see what's happening on the scene, it's, it's just so much. Our police officers every day are putting their lives on the line and they have to be not only a psychologist and a mental health expert, but, you know, also a, a coach and a peer, you know, just to make sure that they can get through situations that they're approaching on a daily basis. Uh, we ask a ton of our police officers and they deserve to have the training and resources available to them in order to make sure that they're doing the best for their community. I do not support the funding of police. I think it's the wrong way to go. I think we need to add more funding and make sure they have the resources available to protect our communities. All right, Ms. Miranda, you have one minute for the question. Thank you for that question. I absolutely support funding the police. Um, in 2013, my opponent told the Hamilton County Sheriff that he needed to set his priorities when they asked for an increase in their budget. That was already a low budget to begin with. And furthermore, I think these insensitive and offensive attacks that my opponent keeps telling the public are not only harmful and manipulated, but these accusations are not true. The fact of the matter is, is that folks like me, your representative here in the Great 28, supports funding our police. In fact, I support putting more of our tax dollars back into the local government fund that goes to fund our counties, cities, villages, and townships for critical safety services right here in our communities. We are blessed here in the Great 28 that we 
are able to have such amazing police departments that I stand behind each and every day. And every single time we have a bill that comes across the floor that has something to do with their line of work, I engage them as the necessary stakeholders. They tell me what they need, and I respond by being a representative who shows up for them. All right, that them. is your time, Ms. Miranda. I, I'd thank like to you. respond to the you, comment about the sheriff's budget, if you that's have all right. 30 seconds. Okay, yeah, thank you. So the sheriff's budget, actually, we've had increased it over the last several years I was in office uh, from a standpoint of where it was before. So every year they actually got an increase than the previous year before because we knew that it was important to make sure that that had resources available. And I think the issue that we have in regards to just the police in general is the social media post that she put out saying that blue lives don't exist. You know, to me, I think that was disparaging and disrespectful for the men and women who every day put their lives on the line for us. Uh, to me, I think that's holding leaders accountable for what they put out there and making sure that's not irresponsible or wrong. All right, thank you for that. Ms. Miranda, you have 30 seconds to rebut. Thank you. Again, I am the daughter of a fallen deputy sheriff. No one understands the life of being a police officer much like my mom, my sisters, and I do. I hold very dearly and respect very greatly the job that our women and men in uniform do. Every day that they go to work and put their lives on the line is a day that protects us and our communities. And I support citizens using their First Amendment right to peacefully protest when they see wrongdoings in our All community. All right, that is your time, Ms. Miranda. You do have the next question, our final question for the night. Representative Miranda, you won this district by only 56 votes out of more than 55,000 votes cast in 2018, clearly a divided district. Whichever of you wins will be the representative for a near majority of the opposite party. Please explain how you will reach across the aisle, both in General Assembly as well well as in our communities to serve everyone in the 28th district. Absolutely, and thank you for that question. As I've expressed through our time together today, every bill that I have worked on is bipartisan. I am the only Democrat who was asked to work on the policing um, study that is going on across the state. I am the only Democrat who has a bipartisan bill that is supported by the Ohio Secretary of State to combat and get dark money out of politics by campaign finance reform. I am the only Democrat who has each one of my bills bills that are bipartisan with the exception of maybe one or two. And that is showing up for my district every single day. No matter your party affiliation, unaffiliated Republican, Democrat, that doesn't matter to me. I'm a mom, a small business owner, and a formal school, former school board president. I show up for you every day and I work for you every day. That is a value that I hold dearly and that if I am given the honor to serve you again in the state house, I will show up for you and your family every Every day, you can count on me to listen. That's your time, Mr. Monzel. One minute. Uh, I have a proven track record of working bipartisanly from my time on Cincinnati City Council when I was in the super minority, as well as on Hamilton County Commission. Uh, some of the work that we've done from moving the Board of Elections to Norwood to a central location, to building a new crime lab, to increase the state-of-the-art facility for solving crimes, uh, to our infant mortality task force, which led to Cradle Cincinnati, which has reduced the infant mortality rate in our communities. Those were all done bipartisanly, uh, working across the aisle. I will meet with anyone. I always have. That's always been my policy, an open door policy. No matter what group or, or where from, I will come to you or you can come to me. We'll meet somewhere in between because it's important to have that dialogue, to have that conversation. Everyone deserves to be heard and that's what I've always done. I've always been there. I always will be there to represent every citizen 
in the district. And, and to me, that's so important because even though we might disagree, we can still disagree, agree to disagree and be agreeable to one another. And I think that's what's missing in politics. We need more civility and being able to solve problems, get work done. I'm an engineer. That's why I do for a living is solve problems. That's, and that's your what time. And that brings us to our closing statements. Mr. Mangadell, you will go first. You have one minute. Yeah, well, thank you, Ashley. Thank you, WLWT, for hosting us tonight. It was really great being able to discuss with you my vision for District 28 and what's important. You know, for me, this is my home. This is where I grew up. This is where I work. Uh, this is where I raised my family. You know, I have three children, and what I want for District 28 is what every family wants. They want communities that are safe and they have jobs and have opportunities. And that's what I'll be doing when I go up to Columbus is to fight for you to make sure that that happens. Because when you compare the two of us and our records, you can see that my opponent has been ineffective, that she's been absent, and she's been divisive. And what we need actually is someone in Columbus that can get things done, that can actually get bills passed, that actually show up, unlike what she did for House Bill 6, show up and do the job and the work of what a representative is, and isn't divisive, and isn't putting out social media posts that just is disrespectful and irresponsible. That's what I'll do. I will show up, I will fight for you, and I ask for your vote. For more information, you can check our website at monzel.com. Thank right. you very much. Thank you. And Ms. Miranda, you have a minute. Thank you. And I just want to say thank you, WLWT. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you to my fellow Ohioans for tuning in to this important debate. This, your, your interest in local elections is what makes our democracy thrive. As you know, I'm a mom. I'm a former school board member. member I'm a business owner. I know all of the issues that are facing our, our citizens and our families in the great 28. I show up for you day in and day out, despite the manipulative attacks you see coming from my opponent. My opponent has done his best job to try to prove to you he is a moderate. He is nothing short of extreme. This is not what we need in the state house. We do not need more ideologues who come to the state house and try to pass crazy bills that do nothing for us back home and certainly don't bring our tax dollars back home and ensure our businesses have the opportunity to thrive. That's not what we need. My name is Jessica Miranda and I am proud and honored to be your state representative. I earned your support in 2018 and I hope to earn your That's support your time. again. Thank, thank you. you. And I'd like to thank both of our candidates for being here tonight. Next, I'll be joined by the candidates for Hamilton County Commission. That's coming up right after the break. We've all seen it. That check engine light in our car. Do I check it now? Check it later? Can I keep driving? That one light doesn't tell you what you need to know. And if you get your weather from a symbol on your phone, you're not getting the full story. WLWT Weather has the only certified most accurate forecast in Cincinnati. It's where you get the difference-making details. You'll know exactly what to expect and when, so you can plan your day. WLWT Weather, Cincinnati's certified most accurate forecast. You're watching a Commitment 2020 special, the WLWT Debates. Once again, Ashley Kirkland. Welcome back, and now we turn our focus to the Hamilton County Commission. Tonight's debate features two of the candidates competing to fill Todd Fortune's seat. Joining us is Republican Andy Black. Mr. Black is a Cincinnati native, a graduate of Miami University, and has a master's degree from Bellarmine. He works in the private sector, primarily in financial technology. He has also served as a council member and as vice mayor of Marymount. Black, Mr. Black lives in Indian Hill. 
And his opponent is Dr. Herman Najoli. He is the first independent candidate and the first black man ever to make the general election ballot for Hamilton County Commission. Dr. Najoli holds multiple degrees from several universities. He has coached sports at three schools and Dr. Najoli was raised in Kenya and lives in Price Hill. Welcome to both of you and thanks for joining us. Now, we want to note that Democrat Alicia Reese is also on the ballot in this race and WLWT and the Reese campaign have talked multiple times about this debate through emails, phone calls and in-person conversations. Miss Reese has declined all of our requests to join us tonight. Now, with that said, we want to talk about the issues with the candidates who are here and we don't have a lot of time tonight, so we want to make sure that we move to our opening statements and Dr. Najoli, by virtue of a coin toss, you have the first opening statement. You have one minute. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Andy. It's nice to meet you. Big thanks to WLWT for hosting this debate. I am honored. I want to say thank you too to more than 6,000 residents who signed my petitions to be on the ballot. I am running because I want to bring a paradigm shift to Hamilton County local government. Voters are looking for a leader who will end the divisive politics of our county. I'm running as the first independent to make it to the ballot, and I do not take that lightly. I want to bring about seismic change to Hamilton County, to bring about a better government where there's honor and respect of our democracy, not the games that the Democratic candidate is playing in this race. I'm running to be your next county commissioner. I thank you for your trust. Dr. Nadoli, thank you. And now to the opening statement from Mr. Black, you also have one minute. Thank you. And thank you, Channel 5 and WLWT, for hosting today's debate. And Dr. Nadoli, thank you for being here. And, and, uh, and it's impressive what you've done to become the first ever independent candidate to make it on the ballot as a Hamilton County Commissioner. So congratulations to you for that. Thank you. Um, but, you know, today we're here not for Dr. Nadoli and for me. We're here for the voters. And I think that's what debates are about. They're here to talk about the issues at hand. Uh, unfortunately, Alicia Reese chose not to attend this debate or other debates. And at least many wondering, including myself, is how committed is she to this role? Will she sign a four-year term commitment? I have done that. She will not do that. Uh, is she committed to not defunding the police? She's been silent on that, on that issue. I'm committed to not defunding our police and finding ways to get our police law enforcement to work closely with community leaders. I have a plan for addressing COVID-19 because undoubtedly what we're going to face in 2021 and 2022 are some shortcomings at our budget level as a result of COVID-19. So I'm here today to talk to you about ideas. I'm here today to interact with Dr. Najoli and let you voters decide who would be the next county commissioner that will best represent all 840,000 residents here in Hamilton County. Mr. Black, thank you. And now for our questions, each of you will have one minute to answer each of my questions. Now, if I need to ask a follow-up question, you each will have 30 seconds. Dr. Najoli, you have the first question and we'll start with COVID. Now, health officials say, unless we do something immediately to stop the spread of the coronavirus, Hamilton County is virtually certain to reach the state's purple alert level. Now, this could mean another shutdown of businesses and schools with a mandate from Governor DeWine that people should leave home only for essential supplies and services. What would you do as county leader to reverse this dramatic spike in cases in our area? First, let me say the county commissioners have to be commended for the work that they have done with a very unusually difficult scenario. My 
objective is to make sure that we have a very comprehensive approach to solving COVID. I have stated that we need to have a pandemic plan. It consists of eight elements, production plans for businesses, authority plans for leaders, nursing plans for our treatment teams, data plans for scientific analysts who will help all of our specialists, education plans for our children who are out of school, mingling plans for individuals as they go out into the communities, intergovernmental plans for our local jurisdictions so that they can work together, and change plans for future control of any pandemics. As your county commissioner, I will work hard to make sure we have a very comprehensive pandemic plan. Thank you. Mr. Black, you also have one minute for the question. Yeah, so great question. Obviously, none of us saw this coming, right? The year started off uh, early 2020. We were facing a deficit as a county. And then in March, we found out about this global pandemic coming our direction. And it threw all plans out the window. I've met with the county administration officials, uh, talked with those who are on the ground and asked, you know, what, what can we see coming down the pike in 2021, 2022 from a financial perspective, given the impact of this? I think we have to commend those who've been out in the front and have had to make these decisions on the fly. There was no plan. There was no no, no, no guidebook they could turn to. Um, so I'm not going to critique what they've done or what they haven't done. But I believe that following the science, following the folks who have, who have been in the field and know what the, you know, what the issues that are going to face those in the medical community needs to be the first priority. We obviously need to figure out a way to get our businesses back open and back on even par, which we've done. But quite frankly, I'm concerned with, with what we're going to see once the annual budget is, re is released later this year. As, as we saw with the city, uh, they face an $80 million deficit. And I'm afraid the county is going to be facing something very similar. All right, Mr. Black, uh, we will start with you for the next question. You kind of led mm -hmm. into it with COVID and businesses, businesses, particularly small businesses are suffering immensely from this pandemic. What plans do you have to help them survive this crisis, especially if we face another lockdown? Well, if we face another lockdown, um, I'm not sure if many of them are going to survive. I'll just be honest about that. They went through it once. And those who I talked to say, if we have to go through that again, you know, I, I cannot afford to keep a restaurant staff uh, on our bill or on our books for their six months if we're going to have to shut down again. So given that 40% of our state sales tax revenues comes from restaurants and bars, I don't think we'll be able to have that option. I think we'll have to look at different alternatives because if we do that again, it's not only going to affect those individual business owners, it's going to affect the core services that the county, the state, the federal level are to be providing to the residents, our most vulnerable residents. So, you know, my goal would be to reach out to those. Uh, there's obviously been committees formed, but continue to reach out and engage and figure out ways to keep everybody operating while also keeping everybody safe at the same time. Because I don't want to see us go through another lockdown. I think putting on the masks, keeping your distance is the appropriate thing to do. And if we all could just do that, I think we wouldn't be dealing with these questions. All right, Mr. Najoli, you have one minute for that question. Oh, my hope first and foremost is that uh, we can continue to ensure that uh, people are staying safe. As people stay safe and they go out to support local businesses, then we begin to see our businesses thriving. My goal is uh, to ensure that we have entrepreneurial in empowerment taking place in all of our communities. I will make sure that we are engaging with small business owners and uh, entrepreneurs to address any challenges and issues that they are facing. I'm thankful that there's been support for local businesses through federal funding. We have to find more ways in which at the county we can do more for our small business owners. And uh, as a candidate who is doing tremendously so much with a very low resource in running a countywide campaign, I am prepared to make sure that uh, we tighten our belt where we need to do to tighten our belt so that we can support our local businesses. 
Mr. Black, you have 30 seconds to respond. Just a quick follow-up on that. I think with the, what the CARES Act funding we received has been a, a nice start from the federal level. It's about $142 million, is my understanding. I think that's a nice start, and certainly money that will be needed will be used. Uh, but I would encourage those at the state level and the federal level to continue to push for more, because Hamilton County is not going to be alone. It's going to affect all counties throughout the Midwest. And as I travel in my day job and I drive around and see, you can see a definite change in how these you know, mid-sized cities or mid-sized counties have been affected by this pandemic. Mr. Nadoli, you have 30 seconds to respond if you like. Well, yes, tremendous uh, congratulations to uh, our county commissioners for what they have done with the CARES Act. We have to continue to make sure that uh, we find our other avenues where we can support our local businesses. I will go in and actually just really study all of the work that has been done to make sure that uh, we can do extra work to ensure our county's businesses are proper, prospering. Ms. Dr. Majoli, we will start our next question with you. Question four on major projects in our area. We have to look at foreseeable expenses still ahead of us. The Western Hills Viaduct is one major infrastructure project, but far from the only one. What infrastructure projects are on your list and how do you propose to pay for them? You have one minute for that question. Obviously, first and foremost, I live on the west side. I use the Western Hills Viaduct. It is in dire repair of need of repair. So I would work hard to make sure that uh, we get that funding uh, that has already been collected over so many years to bring it back into the county so that we can apply it to the viaduct. And uh, obviously there's issue seven, which was uh, passed to ensure that we can work on infrastructure projects, the roads and uh, the viaduct, our bridges. We will need to make sure that that money actually really goes to these projects. Additionally, we want to make sure that uh, we continue to generate revenue. I have suggested that uh, we need to prepare for the FIFA World Cup in 2026, which will be a boon to our local economy. I want to do everything in my power to make sure we host a couple of soccer games, which can bring upwards of 600 million to our local coffers, can create jobs close to 40,000 jobs for our local residents. So those are my key initiatives as regards uh, infrastructure. All right, Dr. Njoli, thank you. Mr. Black, you have one well, minute. The, the Brent Spence Bridge obviously comes to mind. I know that that would be much more complicated because you have Kentucky involved now. You've got multiple state entities. Uh, that would be the big the big one I think everybody would point to besides the Western Hills Viaduct. But you know, I think that there is something that Dr. Njoli hit on, which is when that issue seven tax passed uh, last year, that's allocating a lot of money, $100 million for buses and $30 million approximately for road improvements. I, I would make that a key point of, a, of the, the, the county administrations to work with the members of SORTA. I know the county, the county board will have more insight into who goes on that board, but making sure that those dollars are allocated appropriately, because in the length of that entire tax legislation, we're looking at $2.5 billion with a B that'll be brought in, and to make sure that those monies are spent appropriately, they're not going to the streetcar, they're not going to other projects that may be flashing the, the, you know, the hot item of the day, ones that will actually be sustainable and can be operated at the county level. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. And next question, county versus city. We have seen instances of Hamilton County leaders clashing with Cincinnati leaders about the path forward on development projects. For example, example the music venue uh, on the banks. Who should take the lead on these projects and how should you work through differences to be sure that you are representing the best interests of both the roughly 300,000 city residents and the 500,000 county residents? Mr. Black, you have the first question. Great question. 
this is the one that uh, goes back to one of the key themes of my campaign, which is balance. I feel like right now we have one party control. We've got a super majority at City Hall. We've got the Board of Commissioners is all dominated by one party, the Democratic Party. To their credit, they've convinced voters that they're the ones to be in control. But at the same time, nothing's getting done. We feel like we're still in the same spot we were years ago. So my goal is to come in and bring an outside voice, not a political expert, not a political partisan, but somebody who's worked in business, somebody who understands that there has to be some gray area we can find a compromise on. If that requires going in and looking at some of these committees that have been in place and replacing members to, to bring in outside voices, let's do that. Let's put all options on the table because right now we cannot continue to have this, this city hall versus the county board of commissioners strife that's been going on for, for too long, quite frankly. All right, Dr. Nijoli. Yes, I would uh, first say that I'm running as an independent candidate for a non-partisan role. And I believe that I am best prepared to really unify our county. We have seen what happens when we have the duopoly in our local government, which leads to the gridlock that we have experienced for so many years. I want us to be able to consider uh, how we can bring about brilliance into our government. And I think that comes from a basis of uh, bringing in an outsider who has an independent mind, who is not beholden to any political party or any interests. I am really uh, radically in the middle. I'm not beholden to any of the parties. So I will work with uh, our city leaders to ensure that uh, we are in unison as we move forward into the future. I think that our county government needs uh, more vision rather than just uh, balance. Our government needs someone who will bring a paradigm shift in how we think about local government. Mr. Black, you have 30 seconds to respond. Yeah, just an add-on to that. I think you know there's there's a lot. It seems like there's a lot of the same players involved in some of these decisions in various county uh, board appointments or city appointments. I'd like to bring in some new voices, have in industry experts in business and finance and law and education and architecture. Bring those folks in and have them not be scared of the political piece that goes along with this. Because I think there are a lot of there's Fortune 500 companies here, but there's also some small entrepreneurs who I believe have great ideas and are simply just not wanting to get involved because they don't want to get involved in the mess that that is politics. So. Hopefully we can present a, present a, a, a you know a, a board that's more welcome to outside ideas. Dr. Nijoli, you have 30 seconds. Yes, uh, for too long our residents have viewed our local government as uh, the decisions of an elite few, mm -hmm. and I am running to bring the voices of residents into local government. Obviously, I'm a new voice. I have not been a, a player in the local political environment. I'm, a, I'm an outsider, and if you truly want change, what better way to go? for it uh, than to bring in someone who is not involved in any of the local political divisiveness. Dr. Njoli, you have our next question on policing. The deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor are the most high profile recent examples, but concerns over policing and minority communities have existed for a very long time. One solution that has gained support is to move some money from law enforcement budgets to fund social service programs for better mental health services, more low income housing and economic opportunities, among others. Do we need better social service programs like these? And if so, where should that money come from? Dr. Najoli, you have one minute. I do support the idea of uh, moving money around because that will lead to efficiency and a smarter government. I want our law enforcement to actually be swift in responding to issues, to be, uh, have agile systems. 
and also to be able to have the responsible leadership that addresses societal challenges. So we would look at avenues through which we can ensure that uh, we have law enforcement that is equipped to be smarter in addressing uh, policing needs and also to find avenues through which residents and uh, uh, the law enforcement can have a better relationship. Uh, that can require, might require bringing in uh, expert individuals to go into communities and have conversations which will enable a tighter relationship growing between individuals and those who are serving them in law and order. Mr. Black, you have one minute for the question. Yeah, I think, you know, what you're asking, obviously I addressed at the beginning, I'm not for defunding the police. I think there is, there is plenty of opportunity for improvement between law enforcement and community relations, specifically in the African-American community. Uh, I believe that there needs to be an outreach program. There was one that was put in place following the riots in 2000. We can build upon that. I mean, Cincinnati was the, the, man, the example or the shining star for that nationwide. And I think we need to go back, take a look at that and build on that. However, uh, I, don't, I would argue that the county is not a matter of taking money from the police to go fund these programs. I believe that the income or the revenues are there. They're just misappropriated. We're spending too much money, I think, on stadiums or other buildings in our county that are occupied, occupied at 60% capacity. Could we look at ways to take money out of those assets and reapply them to social services, mental services, whatever you may want to call them, uh, to take care of the folks who are most vulnerable? Because at the end of the day, the mental health that these folks are exhibiting, the mental issues they're struggling with is pouring over. And they're, you know, they're doing things, obviously, that are leading to breaking the law and things that the law enforcement have to get involved in. So I'd be more kind of looking at opportunities to reallocate dollars than go out and target the police themselves. All right, so let's stick with social services. This question is about homelessness, and we'll stick with you, Mr. Black. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about funding for low-income housing, but that skirts around the problem of homelessness here in Hamilton County. The reasons for homelessness can be complex and difficult to tackle, and the far-reaching results of homelessness even more so. What is your plan to address homelessness in Hamilton County? Mr. Black, you have one minute. So I think it comes back to the financial situation we find ourselves in, quite frankly. I think we can talk about these programs Programs, but right now, the county, even pr prior to COVID, uh, was continually operating in a negative deficit budget. And, and that, that in itself uh, limits what the county can do, even for the most vulnerable and homelessness in our society. I think that there is obviously opportunities to uh, right the ship, bring in more job opportunities, bring in more trade-type uh, school environments where those individuals can go out, either get re-educated or find their passion and get them off the street. Uh, there's not a silver bullet, I don't believe, for homelessness. If that existed, I think we would have heard about it 30 or 40 years ago. But I think it comes back to how is the county allocating dollars, how are they managing the money that they brought in. They're bringing in, we're bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars every year from, in sales tax revenues, property tax revenues. Where is that money going? And again, I go back to where we're spending it and where we need to be spending it, I think is what needs to be more closely looked at and homelessness would need ne necessarily be one of those, those topics. Thank you, Dr. Nadoli. you have one minute for the question. Thank you. I happen to be wearing my 40 under 40 pin in 2015, I was named one of Cincinnati's 40 under 40 for my work in helping homeless men get off the streets into shelter and rapid rehousing. I have helped so many uh, men and women that are, were homeless to move out of that situation and into a more stable life. I will suggest creating a county office for regional research on eliminating causative tendencies in individuals with vulnerability experiences. Besides the homeless, there are so many people who have a low income and are unable to just come out of that cycle of poverty. So this plan would work towards enabling individuals have a stipend which they can invest locally and we track their progress in being able to get themselves out of that situation
education, provide them with coaching and mentoring so that they can succeed in breaking out of the cycle of poverty and out of homelessness. Uh, just a follow up to this question, how do you propose paying for these extra services uh, to help curve homelessness? Uh, Mr. Black, we'll start with you. Well, as I said a few minutes ago, I think the, the way the county is allocating funds, I think there, there should be a top to bottom you know, analysis in terms of where are we spending the money that's being brought in? Are we spending it too much in investing in stadiums? Are we spending it not enough investing in mental health services? Are we spending too much in certain areas of our of the seven offices that the, uh, the, the county board of commissioners has oversight for? Because, you know, let's not forget that the county board of commissioners is a financial position at the end of the day. First and foremost, it's a board of directors role. And how is that money being allocated and how are the line frontline folks, whether it's the sheriff, the prosecutor, how are they spending those dollars? I think that's where we need to start. All right, Dr. Nigella, you have 30 seconds. I would uh, find avenues through which we can look at our budget to identify LAD and uh, use a scalpel to eliminate any excesses and drive that money towards actually helping individuals that are homeless. Uh, there are many areas in our budget where we can find uh, of our the budget is stretched, you know, but we can find avenues through which we can find more money using a scalpel to make sure that that money is directed towards addressing homelessness and the vulnerable in our society. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's talk about Todd Pertoon's legacy. Whoever wins this election will be taking over the seat held by Todd Pertoon. And before his death, Mr. Pertoon was the longest serving politician in Hamilton County's history. His list of accomplishments and the programs that he touched are extensive. How do you fill that role and what responsibility do you have as his successor to honor his legacy and perhaps his agenda? Najoli, Dr. Najoli, you have one minute for this question. Uh, Todd Portune was a wonderful leader, and uh, that's why the county administration building was named after him, and the street is named uh, Portune Way. However, I am troubled by what happened in 2008. Uh, there was a collusion, a backroom back deal between the leaders of the local Democratic Party and the Republican Party to ensure that Todd Portoon remained a county commissioner. Individuals who wanted to challenge him were prevented from challenging him. And I think that was just the ultimate uh, voter suppression, taking away the right of voters to pick their next county commissioner or to have a debate or discussion on who will run for that office. And that is when I personally uh, had that dream emerge to one day run for county commissioner because I saw that backroom deal in 2008 and uh, it really disturbed me that two political parties, local parties, would hinder county voters from voting for a commissioner. Mr. Black, you have one minute. Yeah, so Todd was the epitome of the public servant. I mean, he did this truly because he loved this job. Uh, another thing Todd did do, he showed up to every opportunity to debate ideas. He didn't hide from ideas or hide from the debate. You knew where he stood and he would show up whether it was all one party there or within his own party. He would show up and say, this is what I stand for. What are your ideas? Let's see if we can find common ground. Uh, obviously, one of our opponents is not here today to even have that conversation. So uh, I think that, you know, what Todd would say and what he would look for out of the next commissioner is somebody who's willing to work across party aisles, somebody is working to find common ground with the city hall, somebody's looking to grow the region. And that's my plan as, as the next county commissioner is to try to get Cincinnati, the city of Cincinnati and the county as a whole back on competitive footing so we're not falling behind the, the Columbuses or the Franklin counties here in the Midwest. All right, thank you both for your time. And that brings us to our closing statements for the evening. Dr. Najoli, you will go first and you have one minute. Thank you. 
I am in this race to ensure that Hamilton County becomes one big, harmonious, amazing, magnificent, lively, thrilling, and outstanding neighborhood. I petitioned to run in a very difficult way, collecting signatures for 10 months on the streets. I'm asking you to give me that chance to be your next county commissioner. I have a global mindset. I'm bringing thinking that is going to enable us to move forward. I believe it is not a time to bounce back. One of the candidates has said that they are equipped to enable our county bounce back. We don't want to bounce back, bounce back to the 2000s. Well, we want to move forward. We want to be fast. We want to lead. And I believe I am the most equipped candidate in this race. I'm asking you to give me that opportunity to be a county commissioner, and I will be the greatest commissioner in the entire 230-year history of Hamilton County. We've had more than 600 individuals get on the ballot for commissioner. Never has there been an African-American male. I am bringing transformation and change, seismic change, to our county. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, thank you, Mr. Black. You also have one minute for our closing thank statement. You. Well, thank you again to WLWT for hosting this. And it was short, but we got to exchange some ideas and appreciate the opportunity. Um, look, I got into this because I saw an opportunity. I felt like as a, as a county, we are not all blue. I know there's a lot of political scientists out there who say Hamilton County is turning blue. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. And in my last 18 months of doing this, going around the county and visiting with everybody in the townships and cities and villages and within our city, there are a lot of folks out there that are independent-minded and know that we need to have some change. We're one party control is not good government. So, you know, I'm here today because I wanted to make sure that we could at least exchange some ideas, share my vision for how I think we can grow the economy. Again, one of our opponents decided not to be here today. So at the end of the day, I asked the voters, who do you trust to lead, your, lead our county into the next four years? Who will serve out the four-year term? Who will be there to hear your ideas and consider all options? And I would hope to have your support next Tuesday, November 3rd. Thank you. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you both for being here. And I would like to thank both of our candidates for being here tonight. We also want to note again that that WLWT wanted all of the candidates in this race to participate, including Democratic contender Alicia Reese. Ms. Reese declined multiple invitations to be here tonight. Finally, a reminder that we are one week away from Election Day, and you can find all your options for voting on our website, WLWT.com. Thank you for joining us this evening. Good night.